Hi, everybody. Welcome to Kindred Schools. I'm Matt Fries. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Olson. Nick, how are we doing today? I can't say anything other than great. Vikings are on a five-game winning streak, despite even more injuries piling up. So excited to dive into the Saints game. I actually I thought they were going to be a really tough test for us, and this was one where I was expecting us to 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 lose it. So to go into the game and at halftime be up twenty-four-three, and granted we let the Saints back into it, but it was a fairly dominant wire-to-wire win. Um, that was really impressive, and. Um, makes you feel really confident, not just in the players, but particularly in the coaching on this Vikings team on both sides of the ball. So excited to talk about like exact, cause like, that's what we do is like, we talk not just about the players, but like the coaching and the schematic tinkering and all that stuff. So this was a fun game, I think, particularly to sort of tease out um, how Brian Flores is elevating this defense, how Kevin O'Connell is really elevating Josh Dobbs in this offense. So uh, a fun, it was a fun game to, to watch live and it was a fun game to, to watch the all 22 of. Yeah, I, I think so, too. And, like, the game itself, right, it, it did feel like the it was kind of getting away from the Vikings there at the end, right? And the Saints were in the ability to come back. But what you have to remember about that is the Saints were down eight, like, the entire fourth quarter, right? To come back from being down eight, you have to not only score a touchdown, you have to get a two-point conversion, which is about a 50% probability, and then you have to win the game in overtime, which is another 50% probability, right? So just by those two 50% probabilities, the Vikings have a 75% chance to win the game, and then you take away the percent chance that the Saints don't even get the touchdown in the first place, which they never ended up getting, right? So like... Even if it felt like a one-score game and it felt close, eight-point games are a lot less of a coin flip than they may seem. And I, I, I feel like they're a little bit less of a, a significantly less than a coin flip than like a seven-point game, right? So when the Vikings, and they've had a few of these during, or, you know, past couple of years, when the Vikings have that sort of situation, it's really not as dire as it sounds, although it's really, really bad if you end up giving up that touchdown, that two-point conversion, and losing the game, right? Like, that's about... That's a that's a really bad situation to be in, and it feels really bad when you do that. Um, but yeah, going back to what you were saying just about the coaching and, and everything, I think this coaching staff has shown to be phenomenal. But you know, you got to give credit to the players too. Like the scheme elevates the players, but it doesn't replace what they're able to do on the field. So it's really both sides complementing each other. Totally, yeah. But really fun to see, and the offense is. They're, they're doing new things that they weren't able to do that specifically take advantage to, of Josh Dobbs' legs. And with that, why don't we dive into it? I thought um, yeah. this was a really impressive game by Josh Dobbs. I was um, PFF didn't necessarily agree, but like watching the tape, I was kind of blown away by how good he was. Mm-hmm. Um, not The thing that struck me the most about this performance by Dobbs uh, was the ball placement because the Saints are a man-heavy defense, and that's what we got out of them. And Kevin O'Connell was busting out a lot of the – the man beaters and a lot on the on a lot of these um why cross routes to tj hawkinson downfield that post route touchdown to tj hawkinson um some of these like deep sideline shots like the ball placement was ex- extraordinary um and the, the the way dobbs is able to like sync up his footwork with the throw and granted he did have like one bad high miss to hawkinson or whatever that was like <laughs> where were you throwing that so, one so that um, one i think got tipped but there was another the one on the yeah. third down because I actually went through that I tweeted that and somebody was like didn't that ball get tipped and I was like yes it it absolutely did um and, but there was one on the third down later in the game where the Vikings dropped back to pass and went incomplete he just whiffed on he like just worm burnered the throw um yeah 
Yeah. But like overall, like the ball placement was like, like very like between hitting guys between the numbers in stride. And I thought that was like, I think of Dobbs not as like a precision rhythm passer. I think of him as a um, playmake, like, you know, a, like a budget Russell Wilson or something like a discount, like um, playmaker who can do some crazy things um, in the pocket and scrambling. Uh, but I don't think of him as like, a, you know, I'm going to find my guy, move through my progressions and I'm going to hit guys in stride downfield. But that's what he was this game. And so that was for him to be able to show that. Like I knew we, we've seen Josh Dobbs make magic happen in the pocket and as a rusher. But for him in this game to like show the accuracy on all those crossing routes, um, that was that I thought that was particularly impressive and made me feel a lot better about the Josh Dobbs offense. Um, in addition to all the other cool stuff like that, um, the, the the fake zone read that was actually like a quarterback sweep um, that Kevin yeah. Cobb, like installed that was a really really yeah. cool play design um, where where because like it shows they they understand like when you have a quarterback who can run you you can exploit that by being plus one in the box because now your running back becomes your blocker and now Ty Chandler's out there blocking for him and Josh Dobbs can pick up an easy mm-hmm. you know chunk of yard so um, that there there are a number of different routes I feel like all their kind of Blood concept. There are a lot of concepts, high-low concepts, where the low in the concept was Dobbs as a rusher. I feel like they they took out, they scrapped a lot of those flat routes from the playbook that I'm used to seeing with Kirk Cousins, and now like Dobbs as the rushing threat is just like throw high. If the cornerback drifts back, you just take off. And so yeah, um, it's cool seeing them unlock entire new parts of the offense uh, with a rushing quarterback because obviously Kevin O'Connell. We've seen Kevin O'Connell do a lot of really cool stuff with Kirk Cousins. Uh, but this is a whole different kind of offense that we're seeing before. And some of it is unplanned. Some of it is Dobbs, you know, making magic happen, like on that scramble touchdown. But a lot of it is like Kevin O'Connell, like specifically realizing Dobbs has this strength to his game. And there are a lot of old fashioned NFL coaches who do not um, do not want to use like a quarterback scrambling or running as part of their design. Mm-hmm. But, like Kevin O'Connell mid season is basically able to in- install new plays that take advantage of that and adjust the, the reads and adjust the routes um, so seeing all that, I think, you know, a lot of credit to Josh Dobbs and the performance he did, but also a lot of credit to Kevin O'Connell and how he's able to remake his offense uh, in his players to put his players in an event and take advantage of their strength. So uh, it was really encouraging stuff. And obviously it led to a very explosive offensive performance from the Vikings. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's just so much with this Dobbs situation. We talked about it a little bit last week, or we talked about it a lot last week. Right? We spent about half an hour on just how impressive Dobbs coming in in the Atlanta game was. I think he continues to be really impressive to me. I mean, not only the coaching job by Kevin O'Connell, but just how Dobbs has acclimated to this offense really quickly. Because in this game, you don't see him really use his legs unnecessarily. Maybe there was like one or two where, you know, he might have checked down to the flat instead of using his legs. But I'd prefer Dobbs to use his legs rather than checking down into the flat to players who, you know, linebackers are probably there and ready to rally against. Um, when Dobbs scrambled in this game, he really had nothing downfield. Like there, there weren't instances of him being able to do that and his ability to play in rhythm, I thought was really impressive. Um, there, there are a number of plays that show this, but actually, uh, Dan Orlovsky on ESPN's NFL live, there were, there was a segment tweeted out. I think you can find it on his Twitter. I know I retweeted it where he's talking about how Dobbs is operating in the offense at hitting the top of his drop, getting the ball out with one hitch and progressing through reads quickly and appropriately. And that's absolutely true. That's exactly what Dobbs did in this game. He's able to find the open receivers, progress through the reads that he needs to get through. And then if that's not there, he checks down with his legs. Um, There was a play that 
where Dobbs scrambled. I think he gained like six yards. It, it was one of the ones where he like didn't get a first down, right? But he opens up, looks to the right, comes back to the middle of the field. He has got two routes in the middle of the field, checks both of those before he begins to scramble. Um, the way he's playing, there was a... Uh, it's a it's a wave route to Hawkinson, so that's not in the Shanahan playbook that that we have access to, right? But uh, there's an old Sark playbook from Alabama that I pulled up, and it's got this concept called wave, which is basically a high crosser and then a lower crosser crosser behind it on a play action concept or whatever. You've got a post to clear out a deep safety as well. This was the T.J. Hawkinson play where he got tackled out of bounds and like landed on his ribs and that sort of thing. And he looked really, he looked really tired on that uh, two minute drill. But, um, you know, it's like a 20 plus yard play. Dobbs hits his back foot, sees that it's wide open, throws it in rhythm. Um, You know, so that's something the Vikings used earlier this year to success, right? The Vikings are running, are, have been able to run a very similar offensive structure and then add on the things like the zone read kind of concepts like running zone read on that third and two at the end of the game where Dobbs just barely trips or he would have gotten the first down pretty clearly. Like that's a pretty potent weapon to have in a situation where you know you need to run it. The defense knows you need to run it, but you're still trying to get positive yardage, which is something the Vikings haven't been able, weren't able to do at all in this game in the second half, right? Like they were almost completely shut out in the run game in the second half. Um, So just all that from like a mental makeup standpoint, and then the footwork that Dobbs has in the pocket, being in this offense for 12 days, getting a feel for the timing is just absurd to me, right? Like I, I don't know how he's doing it. It's, it's crazy for him to be able to work the way he is. And that's not to say that he's been a better player than Kirk Cousins was in this offense. Like, I think Kirk was clearly operating at a higher level. There were a couple plays where I thought Kirk might have made a throw and Dobbs didn't. Um, there was a check down to Powell before, I think, the few, the check down prior to uh, Greg Joseph's field goal miss. And, and maybe Kirk doesn't make this throw because Kirk probably would check down in this situation. But Matthew Stafford, there was a backside dig, which was maybe open, maybe not open. You really needed to wait for the player to clear the window of the hook defender, which was Tyron Matthew, so he might have read it pretty well. But I guarantee you Stafford's seeing the coverage on that play flooded to the three-receiver side, which is where Dobbs checked down to, and he's going back to the other side and throwing the backside dig, right? He's a very aggressive quarterback. Um, that's a very aggressive quarterback type of play for an and requires a high level of understanding of that play which I'm not sure Dobbs is there yet right and then there's like like he didn't get punished on the one interceptable pass that he did throw right to Addison early in the game where it was just he was kind of late on it and it also kind of just wasn't there at all so you know there are kinks to work through but hey sometimes it's better to be lucky than good right like if we're gonna get those bounces right now we're gonna take them yeah, and look, I, there, there. He hasn't thrown an interception yet, which those will come uh, if his history is any indication. And he's always had a problem with ball security, despite all his uh, magic in the pocket. And I will, you know, like I, it's it's unfair to hold him to compare him to Kirk Cousins in this, but his processing is like not um, above average right now. Which obviously it wouldn't be. He just got there. He's still learning the playbook, but like. Um, there's a lot of hitching going on in the backfield that I'm not used to seeing because I'm so used to seeing Kirk, you know, top of his drop, boom, balls out, one hitch, boom, balls out. Um, 
So like those are limitations in Dobbs's game, and I'm sure they'll they'll crop up going forward. But at the same time, like wow, the ball placement, the playmaking. Um, he's still making reads, and he's still able to like get the ball out. And he's not a run first quarterback, but he has that as a tool in his toolbox. Um, he's doing a phenomenal job, and Kevin O'Connell's really putting him in a in the situation where all his strengths can really shine and all his weaknesses. And I, I feel like. This is an offense that's well set up for a quarterback who needs to do a couple extra hitches because he's still learning the ropes a little bit. Like this is a this is the number one pass protecting offensive line in the NFL according to multiple metrics. PFF's number one highest graded offensive line. Everybody on the line has an average or above average pass blocking grade, and I think all the interior and run blockers kind of interesting um, have a higher pass blocking grade than run blocking grade, which you maybe you wouldn't expect. Uh, considering like that's like a little bit of a surprise from Bradbury, for example, you think of as more of a run blocker. But I I think all their pass protection has really taken a step forward. I think um, Ingram's pass protection has taken a significant leap forward so far this season. So um, and Reisner kind of came in as a better pass protector. So if you if you're going to have a quarterback who um, you're going to call these play action shots, they've been running a lot of play action with Dobbs, or you're going to have these longer developing things, you're going to you're going to allow for a quarterback who can hitch a few times in the pocket. We kind of have the infrastructure to hide those weaknesses, and so I, I feel like. Long-winded way of saying, like, yeah, this is just another way in which they're they're um, they're they're putting in they're, the coaching staff is putting Dobbs in a situation where his weaknesses are um, supported and his strengths are allowed to shine. And so I think that's um, despite the, the 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 small criticisms I have of his game, I think there's a lot of really exciting stuff to see, especially how they're unlocking this new rushing attack in his offense and how that like changes up. Um, not just the 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 dual threat stuff or the the QB running playbook, but also how it affects like the route distributions and how now you can put extra guys out there and uh, do extra things with them. So that's all. Uh, it makes me really excited. And this isn't just like a flash in the pan thing, but this could be like pretty interesting to watch going forward too. So it's exciting stuff. Yeah, the one thing I will say, in particular with the pass protection, is Dobbs may end up making in some instances the pass pro look worse than it than it really was. Um, there were a few instances in this game, and he just tends to have deeper drops than Kirk does, which Kirk is like maybe the single best quarterback in the league in terms of regulating his drop depth and helping out his offensive tackles in particular around the edge um, by, you know, dropping back to like eight yards and exactly eight yards and consistently every single time doing that. Uh, Dobbs, there was a play where he was at 12 yards. There was a play where he was at 10 plus yards and like he made it work on those plays. So like that wave play I talked about, you know, he was at 10, 11, 12 yards. He makes a slight shuffle step to one side. It looks like O'Neal got beat, but O'Neal really blocked it to the depth and Dobbs was able to get the throw off. Um, there was another play where he hitched up big and I think he threw to TJ Hawkinson. You know, he was able to get the throw off. Carl Granderson ended up getting to the spot where Dobbs hit the top of his drop, but that doesn't matter because Dobbs was like three yards in front of him after the hitch, right? So it's like Dobbs did work it pretty well when he dropped that deep, but if he drops that deep and holds onto the ball and stays in that spot, it's going to create a problem for the offense. So hopefully we don't see something like that moving forward. Um, the next player we need to shout out on offense is very obviously TJ Hawkinson, right? He had like, I mean... I don't know. They they always game the splits to say very specific things, right? Like, but TJ Hawkinson was the first player with what was it like ten receptions, one hundred twenty five plus yards, and a touchdown in the first half, or the first tight end to ever do that in a game. Um, 
which you can tell it's very gamed because there's like three categories, three boxes that you have to check, right, to to make him the first player to ever do that. But it's still very cool, right? Especially playing through that rib slash oblique injury. And it's like just every time, especially on that two-minute drill drive, he caught the ball and went to the ground. You can tell he's in very obvious pain and he just keeps getting up and keeps playing the football game, right? It was like, it was, it was kind of funny because Kevin O'Connell said, yeah, we'll probably limit his snap count a little bit in the game and then he just goes out and has monster volume in the first half uh so it's like really kevin are, are we really gonna limit this knockout in usage i mean i think that is true when you look at what he did in the run game and that sort of stuff like we used a lot more johnny munt in this game than i think we have in previous games but just really impressive stuff from hawkinson overall right like he beat a corner on a uh, stick china route which is where you go out first you come back in got wide open against a corner ended up getting a first down uh there was a third down conversion he had that was uh no i'm sorry that was the third down conversion i think it was on third and six the wave route i already talked about he's running away from the defender ends up getting wide open there um the touchdown was really impressive right he's running a seam route against a tampa two look from the saints so demario davis is at the line of scrimmage trying to drop back into being a a I'll call it a quote-unquote Tampa dropper, right? Which is a deep middle coverage by the linebacker typically in Tampa 2. That's that's what the unique change to it was. It kind of acts like a deep third player. So if you're running a seam against that, that that's really to take away the seam route. Like That's the point of that coverage. But TJ Hawkinson was just faster than Demario Davis to get depth. So it ended up being really pretty open and Dobbs was able to easily layer the throw over Davis's hands on that play, right? But that's the benefit that Hawkinson's speed gives you. And he had a couple contested catch losses earlier in the game. Those were great plays by Alante Taylor, who was the cornerback. Like, he did a really good job getting his hand in there and disrupting Hawkinson at the catch point on both situations. Um, the second one, you know, Hawkinson wasn't quite as fast as he needed to be to beat Alante Taylor, but that's why he's a tight end and not a corner, right? He's still fast enough to win up the seam on that Tampa two play. And that's exactly what you want from your high paid premium tight end. And it's what Hawkinson gave you in this game, I think. Yes. It's interesting talking about the high paid stuff. Cause a lot of people, uh, there was a lot of consternation when Hawkinson was assigned to this. Uh, extension where he was for a brief moment the highest paid tight end in the I mean there was the consternation early in this game when he didn't get those two contested catches yeah but then he goes out and shows you like all the other things he do he can do that's just such a special such a special player the way he moves those like those choice routes he runs are just money every single time um the 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 wiggle he has on that post route to kind of set up the safety a little bit and allow him to give himself leverage he's so good at establishing leverage on, in his routes because he has like the, the hip swivel of a small wide receiver in like a six, six tight end body. That's just not something you see very often while also still having, I mean, he's not like a, a, a Vernon Davis type, but he has enough speed to, you know, threaten the post on those and on, on that touchdown route, threaten the seam out of a three point stance. Um, just a special combination of receiving skills. Um, he's fifth among tight ends in yards per route run, um, which is, you know, He's not like Travis Kelsey or like Trey McBride or more like, you know, more pure. I'm not, they're not wide tight ends exactly. Um, and he's first among tight ends in receptions. He's first among tight ends in first downs. Um, he His yards per route run is, is higher than Jordan Addison's, which talk about how in, incredible Jordan Addison has been. Like TJ Hawkinson has been even more valuable to the offense than when he's out there. So 
um, his his ability to like get all this stuff done and <laughs> to do all this while he like he's got what like two bru bruised ribs or something like he can yeah. barely like stand when he's going out there the toughness um, was a really really encouraging game from him and he's just such a mismatch weapon um, because of that unique skill set he has so really exciting stuff to see from him and the great thing about tight ends is like they just like they mature like a fine wine you know like Travis Kelsey is like almost a decade older than TJ Hawkinson so I feel like Hawkinson's continuing to get a little bit better uh, it's that kind of like that baseline athleticism that makes him like talented as a receiver. Um, but as you get a little, as you, as you sort of, um, age, as tight ends age, they get a little bit better as blockers. And I feel like they, they learn a little bit more of the, the route nuance. So I think Hawkinson's game is going to continue to be something that's going to make Vikings football fun to watch for the next five plus years. So really excited to see him live out his contract, no matter how expensive people may have thought it was at one point. Yeah, no, it's, it's absolutely worth it. I mean, I think, you look at the Hawkinson trade, right? And to me, it kind of feels like the Jefferson Diggs trade, right? With the Bills, where the Vikings are on kind of the dig side of this with Hawkinson, right? We spent the picks, but we didn't even spend that much. And the difference with the comparison, right, is Sam Laporta is playing great for the Lions. Sam Laporta was drafted with the 34th overall pick. The Lions got like the 53rd pick from our trade, right? So it's not like he was even in play. And, and we got picks back. And we got picks back. The Bills is kind of a one-to-one -one comparison because the Vikings took Jefferson with the with the Diggs pick, right? And you can't say like, oh, well, the Bills should have known Justin Jefferson was going to be at an absolute world beater, right? Like, that's not reasonable. I think saying the Bills won the trade from their perspective isn't unfair. Like, Stephon Diggs is an absolutely phenomenal receiver, and he really broke out once he got to Buffalo, right? Like, I think they made a good evaluation there and made a good move for what their team needed in terms of a veteran receiver. And I think that's true for the Vikings, too. Like, the Lions didn't have a great roster, and they needed more draft capital, so they increased their draft capital by making the trade. They weren't planning on extending TJ Hawkinson for whatever reason it seemed like, right? The Vikings, you know, uh, if you look in the context of last year, they only had one loss at the point where they traded for him, right? They were like 5-1, and 6-1. and one. They were clearly in the thick of the playoffs. They needed a tight end because the Irv Smith experiment hadn't wor worked out. All the, all else we had was Johnny Munt. So you look at TJ Hawkinson as, an, as a long-term investment. I think it was a great move for the team overall, right? Because it helped them win last year, and it's going to help them win for years moving forward. So I, I think overall kind of a win-win trade there in the NFL, right? Like, I, I think it doesn't have to be a winner and a loser in a trade. I think both teams can benefit from the scenario as it was. Um yeah, I'm sure Lions Lions aren't aren't missing TJ Hawkinson too much. At the same time, TJ Hawkinson has become a much better player under the Vikings coaching staff than he was in Detroit. So that's not he wasn't a bad player in Detroit. I think he was a Pro Bowler in Detroit. Um, but like he's become he's ascended to an even better player. Part of that is scheme, you know, a little bit more zone blocking than gap blocking because you, especially when he's lined up in line, you don't necessarily want to. He's not going to drive. Mm -hmm. He's not going to win drive blocks against defensive linemen very often. Um, so part of that scheme, but also part of that is like. Um, Kevin O'Connell's really good at, at seeing what his players are good at and putting them in like all these wide choice routes. Um, he's so money on those. So we run a lot of them and we just spam them. And it's like, it's like great every time, uh, especially when you have that chemistry with the quarterback, because the great thing about a choice route is you make the, you make the, 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 the coverage wrong, but because you just go the way that they're not. So, um, yeah, I, I love Hawkinson. Um, there was, we, we talked a little bit early about this, um, about how, 
it was kind of frustrating how we let the Saints creep back into that. And I saw a lot of people during the game very mad yes. at Kevin O'Connell and the play calling specifically. As, as much as we love Kevin O'Connell, they kind of felt like they turtled up. Um, they didn't they didn't like continue to pour it down their throats. Um, and I saw you tweeting about this, Matt. So do you think like we, we, we turtled up in the second half? Should we have gotten more aggressive or, or did we just do, sort of do the prevent offense? for the second half, and it was that what allowed the Saints to call out, claw their way back into it. So we had a bunch of drives in the second half, right? And I, I think if you want to say the last two drive, like the the second and third drive from the last drive, right, where we, I, I think it was run-run pass, like a, a passing play, that was that incompletion to Hawkinson that I was talking about, actually, I believe, and then run-run-run, right, where we ran the draw play. That to me is absolutely turtling as an offense, right? Like the the Vikings did do that uh, in those scenarios, um, but at the end of the day, like the times before that, I really don't think they did. Right, the first drive of the half, they went down the field. They ended up kicking a field goal, a thirty-three yard field goal. The second drive of the half, they ended up going three and out, I believe. But the three and out was when Josh Dobbs, you know looked like he extended for the first down, but they didn't give it to him live, right? And maybe it's a question of should Kevin O'Connell have have thrown the challenge flag there? I think it was probably a good no challenge to save it for a more critical game-changing play, which I think the the potential fumble at the end where he did end up challenging is more critical than getting that third and one, right? Because at that time, you know, you still have the length of the field to go. And you know, whether or not he should have used his challenge in the first half, he did. So I, I do think it makes sense to conserve that because even if you win that Josh Dobbs challenge, now you have no challenges for the rest of the game, right? Which is a quarter and a half. And that's really hard as a coach. If something critical does happen that you need, that you absolutely need a challenge to kind of stomach if you kind of wasted it on maybe converting a first down. Um, and given that, I don't think you go for it in that situation. I mean, you're so backed up in your own territory. Maybe the numbers do say you should go for it from an analytics perspective. But in terms of, like, that level of being aggressive, I'm not I'm not sure I'm fully there, right? Um, I, outside of that, like, I, I thought they did a pretty decent job. So let me pull it up here again. Um, on the missed field goal, they, they ran four pass plays and two runs, right? They were on the fringe of field goal range to start, but it wasn't like they were running the entire time there, right? And then the the final drive before that two-drive sequence, they ended up getting knocked out of field goal range on a play where they scored a touchdown, right, on the Ty Chandler run that, that busted for a touchdown, they get holding, they get sacked on the next play. Um, one minor criticism of Kevin O'Connell that I do want to put in here is I don't think we had a good answer on the play where Dobbs got sacked. The Saints ran a zero blitz. We run a ton of zero blitzes, right? I think in that situation, the primary goal should be gain yards to get yourself back into field goal range. The ball was at the 41. The line to gain was at the 30, I want to say. Maybe it was the 42 and 31. I think it was a 32-yard run by Chandler on the on the not touchdown. So, but you know, that's well into field goal range. You can put yourself up by two scores if you gain five to six yards. So the Vikings ran routes that all broke at the sticks or were intended to go at or past the sticks. They should have had a hot adjustment when the slot corner blitzed to be able to get a quick pass off, gain five or six yards, and give themselves a chance at a field goal instead of taking a sack and punting. Dobbs, when he hits the top of his drop, has nobody open because the Saints are playing sticks coverage 
on the play and that routes haven't broken yet. So he's got to try to step up in the pocket and it's just completely collapsed. I mean, there was one more blitzer than there was pass protector. That's the point of a zero blitz, right? We run that all the time on defense. We should be very well aware of what that does to the offense. So at, at the end of the day, I think there just wasn't a good enough answer given to Dobbs. And maybe that's a adjustment that, you know, I, I don't know. It seems like we haven't had those kind of hot adjustments all season, right? And it's worked out generally for us, but there have been instances where it's bitten us as well. So, like, I think Hawkinson should just run a hot route on that play. I, I don't really have a better answer than that. But, so to answer your question, did the Vikings offense turtle off a little bit? Yeah, kind of, but we talked about the win probability in the beginning. They weren't that far off. And also, that, that very final drive, I'm totally fine with the Vikings running three times. The Saints got the ball back with six seconds left on the clock. Like, that's that's kind of a nothing burger to me, right? They needed a Hail Mary to win the game. If you put yourself in a situation where your opponent needs to w- make a Hail Mary to win a football game and also make a two-point conversion and also win in overtime, right, given that circumstance, I'm very okay with you not running a pass on that final three plays when you can get that guaranteed. Yeah, yeah, their win probability didn't dip below the 85% for the entire second half. Um, if you, the only time it really dipped below 88, 90% was, um, it was that third down they converted to Brandon Powell. Um, so that like made a jump back up above 90, but for the most part, it felt like (laughs) because we're all traumatized Minnesota sports fans or Vikings fans, we've seen all kinds of crazy things happen. Um, but they were, they were in control. I didn't, I, it's interesting, especially talking about like the fourth down and the two point conversions. I feel like Kevin O'Connell was more aggressive on that stuff. And years past, um, particularly with Quasi taking over as GM, you kind of expect more analytic savviness, which tells you to go for it more often. The NFL meta isn't quite there. Um, go for it on fourth downs. Go for the two-point conversion. You know, the go for two when you're down seven so that you get two bites at the apple mm-hmm. because of the marginal increase in win probability or whatever, um, all that stuff. And we haven't necessarily seen that at the same time. Um if it's not broken, no need to fix it. And here they came away with a win. So I do think, you know, when we're talking about like coach of the year, I, I do think these things matter. And I do feel like he's leaving um, money on the table. Kevin O'Connell is by not being more aggressive in these situations across all um, categories of risk that I, I want my coach to be aggressive on fourth down decisions, third down decisions, mm-hmm. um, uh, 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 pass, pass preference. Although and Kevin O'Connell's credit he has continued to be very, very pass-heavy and very play-action-heavy, which things analytics like. Um, even though he switched to Josh Dobbs in a court, you would think if yes. there were ever time to be more run-heavy, it would be you just threw this, you just got this guy, and he just got here. Well, um, our run game is bad, so that probably doesn't help. That's but. part of it, yeah. But, <laughs> but he's, he's still going out there and chucking it. So um, all that to say, like, um, yeah, I want them to be more aggressive. At the same time, I'm not, it's, it's, it's it's a fault, but I'm not losing sleep over it or anything. And I also feel like at the fan experience makes it feel much more acute than the actual risk that you're or the win probability you're leaving on the table um, actually is. So, um, at the very end, you know, when they were actually kind of just like run, 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 punting. Like at that point, though, the game was pretty much almost sealed. So yeah. that was the worst of it. But at the same time, that was when it was like the least concerning to me. So yeah, um, I, I can. That's kind of exactly how I feel about it. Like you, you tried to score points. Like they very clearly tried to score points and they struggled to do that. So they kind of shifted to just running the clock out. Um, Maybe you should just keep trying to score points. You probably should from like 
a true analytics win probability perspective, but at the same time, like, you know, it's kind of rough. And I will say in terms of Kevin O'Connell going forward and stuff like that, like the Vikings, I think were one of the most aggressive teams over the first five weeks in terms of going forward. I remember at one point, like 6% of our first downs, which seemed like the most in the league came on fourth down. So the Vikings were going for it very much early on. And I think, you know, for O'Connell, it's probably a function of where they are in the game, right? When they're up, he seems to be a little bit more conservative in terms of how he plays things. But when they're down, he's very aggressive in terms of going for it, particularly like in that kind of no man's land, like 40 yard range when it's like fourth and short or fourth and like four or something like that. Like he's very willing to go for it in that scenario. Um, so it, it is kind of an interesting dichotomy there from him. Um one last thing I wanted to hit before we turn it over to the defense, but yeah. uh, with the Cam Akers injury, um, there's a bit of a running back uh, controversy oh right God. now. <laughs> and I saw right before we hopped on, I, I, I tweeted out, it, you were getting you were getting a little beaten up in your response. I, I've been I've been fighting on Twitter all day, uh, well, like for the past three days about this, but you know. But look, I like Ty Chandler. There was run, one run in particular where side it was like wide zone and it was kind of perfectly blocked up for him to go through the c gap between josh oliver and christian derisaw and um and reisner and instead he decided to bounce it out when like there was a there was the end man on the line of scrimmage was on the other side of, of josh oliver and it could have been you know he would have been one-on-one -on -one with the safety with possible you know like 10 plus yards from that run instead he bounces it outside to the sideline and gets like two or three and i'm like oh, oh that's that's why i guess ty chandler uh, was not getting run and why they traded for Cam Akers and why, you know, like we haven't seen a lot of him. Um, he did show, you know, he was able to like uh, on some of the like the, the GY counter stuff earlier in the game. He got a, like a, a very solid pickup on that, like yeah. 10 yards or something. Um, and he had like a couple other like the shotgun inside zone stuff where he was. So he's not incapable of running between the tackles. But at the same time, um, Madison is so much more. um consistent in his vision and and just like taking what's ahead of him and reading things well um so i'm personally of the opinion that like uh, there's there chandler has more juice and i like juice but like give me my, my number one thing i'm looking for with my running back is avoid negative plays keep the offense on schedule um if you can like give me explosives that's great but um i would i would prefer the guy who gives me like a consistent four yards per carry than somebody who gives me zero eight zero eight and ty chandler's more of the more of the latter. So, um, yeah. I don't, did you have any thoughts on their run on their on our running back stable? We got a little. I, I have a, I have a lot of thoughts on our running back stable <laughs> on Madison versus Chandler specifically. Um, so ultimately the thing is, I don't think either of them are like top half of the league running backs. Like, like very clearly not. I just think that Alexander Madison is a better running back than Ty Chandler is right now and like it makes sense why the vikings were starting alexander madison why they traded for cam Akers instead of having chandler as the second back and why madison was still the lead back you know through the atlanta game and was the lead back heading into this game um ultimately with chandler like I think his burst is great, and I thought Akers' burst was great. I think Chandler has more burst than Akers. You saw the Vikings liked to use Chandler on gadget-type plays earlier, earlier in the season, right? That one big screen there called back, or maybe there was, maybe that was a different play or whatever. 
Um, it was it was for the illegal blocking downfield on KJ Osborne, like offensive pass interference. I forget which game it was in. It was a couple weeks ago. It was in the San Francisco game, and then we busted the big screen to Acres on like the next play. Um, mm-hmm. But you know they were using him in space, and I think that Chandler has the ability to be very effective when he has clean reads and clean space in front of him. Um, I looked at all of Chandler's successful plays. By the way, fifteen carries. Five successful plays. That's a 33% success rate in this game. You know, he did have the touchdown that was taken away. Also, that touchdown, wide open blocking. Like, like Chandler was very effective in using his speed, and the Vikings, in place that they called for him, used his speed. There was a wineback that hit the edge. He only, got, he only ended up getting four yards on it, but he very successfully hit the edge. The power plays, there were two in the middle. The cleanest blocked plays in the game from the Vikings, in my opinion. And I think there is some credit for hitting the hole hard, hitting the hole fast, and getting that done, right? The touchdown run, obviously, like, Risner does get knocked multiple yards in the backfield there. And I'm not sure Madison scores that touchdown because Chandler's speed allows him to get the edge immediately. I think, honestly, it's blocked well enough and and the Saints are out leveraged to the point where I think Madison does get the touchdown on that play. But it's definitely closer with the way that I think it was Risner got knocked back into the backfield there. So, like, Chandler does deserve credit there. I don't think the Vikings like him in pass protection. They really didn't use him in pass protection at all in this game. And Madison had a couple nice pass protection wraps. Um, And he just doesn't read the game consistently. There was that outside zone play that you talked about. There were a couple other plays that I've stepped back. Like, the one I thought was probably his fault, but it's... It's kind of a murky situation and bad blocking later in the game um, on those two drives where the Vikings went run, run, punt, basically. Um, One was a pitch play where really I think he should have cut it back up, but he takes it kind of because the safety um, who was in like maybe it was like the D gap and then we had like two tight ends. So there was the E gap outside of it, right? The safety leaves his gap to run towards the outside and Chandler takes the aggressive play when he could have cut back into the gap that the safety vacated basically. Um, I'm not sure that's totally on him. There was another on power where Risner doesn't think he's going to be able to get around and get to the linebacker. Um, So he kind of cuts underneath it. And, and doesn't make the block, right? That's like an athleticism problem for Risner, kind of. That's a, the Saints were playing it very aggressively. But um, but Chandler follows Ham, who was the lead blocker on, on this power play, right? And just gets crunched by Demario Davis at the line of scrimmage, who rushed to the outside. If he cuts that back up behind Risner by reading Risner's block, it's a more successful play. It probably wasn't a good play. Honestly, there wasn't really much there anywhere but it's a more successful play i think that is the sort of stuff that the coaching staff is seeing from chandler in practice that means he wasn't on the field um so if you if you look at it overall like chandler had these nice explosive runs right and it's a it's an exciting element to see and it's especially exciting when you see it uh kind of from the side angle where it's like you can tell he's getting vertical ground quickly right which is not something you see with madison at all but Madison just had the capacity to find space more easily. And I don't think that, you know, that means that Madison is like the best back in the NFL, but I think it makes sense why we signed him to be a starter because he can do things competently and not be just a, you know, a a negative out there on the field. I think with Chandler, we're going to see a lot more negative plays 
on the field from the Vikings than we did with Madison, even if we saw a lot of negative plays with Madison, because I don't think the run blocking is nearly as good as PFF says it is. And I think that's another problem with this whole discussion is that PFF is really high on the Vikings run blocking. And there are so many plays that there really just isn't anything there. Yeah, guys, it's funny. The way PFF makes blocks is like, you'll have like somebody off screen make like a dominant plus 1.5 block, but it's like, they're not really in the read or whatever, so that's cool. But or or you know you'll have two guys make great blocks and one guy who's like the the critical block like just whiff or hit or miss it and you'll get somebody hit in the backfield. So um, I broadly I agree with you. I don't think Madison is good, but I do think he is consistent. And vision is just so important. If you can't run through the right hole, like that's you're you're not going to have a successful rushing scheme. Like it, it's like. It's like designing like a perfect like play call, and but your quarterback will throw it to the wrong guy every time or something. Like it's just it, you you need to have a running back who's able to yeah. make those right reads. And Madison is simply more. It sounds funny because he's had many pro- high profile like bad reads with his vision, and I'm not going about to say like he's got like elite you know uh, a vision. Madison has elite vision or anything, but he has good vision, and I feel like he doesn't screw up very often. And I feel like. The Ty Chandler vision is like, that was a bad miss on that outside zone. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like Madison has misses, but they're usually not that bad. Um, so I, I get it. Um, obviously, Madison's now hurt. So we signed Miles Gaskin. So now it's even more of like a yeah. keep coming. Injuries keep coming. So we'll see what happens going forward. But um, yeah, I, I, I appreciate what Chandler brings to the table. I also don't think he's close to being a complete back that you want to give a lot of snaps to necessarily. As fun as the juice and the electricity uh, that he brings to the game are. I want the running game for this Vikings team to tank the offense as little as possible. That's that's my preference right now, right? Like, I don't care about the explosives. I just want, like, the highest success rate we can get because the passing offense is so good that I just want the, the run game to not put them in complete garbage situations. And I think, ultimately, with who they are as players right now, you're going to end up with worse but you know, with a worse success rate from Chandler than you are with Madison. Maybe I'm wrong in that opinion. Maybe the Vikings are able to do a little bit more power gap stuff with Chandler where he doesn't have to read it out and he can just play fast and hit those holes and it works out for them. Maybe I'm wrong about Madison not missing reads on a consistent basis, but it's like one, like I know that Madison has these high profile misreads, right? And I think if you're listening to us right now, you probably understand that we go through and and like we're not like like we're watching every single play when we go and watch the tape and Madison does not miss plays at an egregious rate. I thought Cam Akers worst missed reads worse than Mad like significantly notably worse than Madison does. I think Ty Chandler is going to miss reads notably worse than Madison does. Um just based on my impression from those guys. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Ty Chandler does come out and astound us, but it's just like, to me, I understand why the coaching staff had Madison as the starter. And I think that that will probably bear out as correct as we see more Ty Chandler with Madison coming back from a concussion. 
Um, so Madison, I suppose, theoretically could come back this week, but I think the Vikings are playing it pretty safe with concussions with players. You know, it sounded like KJ Osborne was going to be available to come back this week, like he had cleared concussion protocol, and then it was a team player decision combination to keep him out of the game to make sure he's fully recovered from that injury. So, I, you know, we're probably going to get a good look this week against a Denver defense that, that hopefully isn't all that great. But let's flip it over to the defensive side of the ball here. Um, and I thought, you know, if the offense really jumped out to the lead in the first half, 24 to three, right? The defense played great in the first half. First of all, right? That's why the Saints only had three points, but they really held it down in the second half and prevented the Saints from coming back. We talked about the frustrating three and outs, you know, and they prevented the Saints from scoring that final touchdown to win the game. Um, so something that was interesting is the Vikings had their lowest blitz rate of the year. Um, you know, it's kind of been fluctuating up and down. You had a really, really high, like a massively high blitz game against the Bears. You had a high blitz game against the 49ers. And then each of the past three weeks, like I think the Packers was exactly 50%. Last week was hovering around 40% against Atlanta. And then this past week against the Saints, I saw from Kevin Seifert that it was at 20% uh, from ESPN Stats and Info. I PFF seemed to have a little bit of a higher blitz rate. Notably, the Vikings blitzed Carr less often than they did Winston once Jameis came in the game. Uh, so it probably is quarterback specific in terms of how much they like to blitz, but they still blitzed Jameis less than 40% of the time, I believe, on his dropbacks per PFF. So, you know, kind of an interesting change up from Flores this year. Uh, a lot more drop eight coverage. I, I mean, still a ton of drop eight coverages, right? And it's like, the Vikings blitz rate wasn't nothing like some teams are what the Vikings blitzed at on average in terms of their blitz over the course of the entire season, right? Like it's, it's probably more of an average blitz rate for an NFL team, but it, it really was, it's been cool to see him switch it up and vary it based on the opponents that they have. Um, Sorry about that. It, it seems like Nick dropped off the call for a second. Nick, you're back. I was I was talking about the Vikings blitz rate. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. If the thing that struck struck me with this Flores game plan was I saw a lot of simulated pressures and creepers against Derek Carr that I'm not used yes. to seeing. Um, and it feels like <laughs> this is a little mean, but I it feels like um, Brian Flores is like I don't need to blitz Derek. Car because he's already going to be conservative and see ghosts a little bit that I don't need to like send a house against him uh, because he's it, Derek Carr is it does have a little bit of a reputation for you know the Alex Smith or like the young Kirk Cousins like uh he, he Derek Carr's average depth of target in this game was you know five yards then James came out and it was more than three times as much part of that is like game situation but like you couldn't have more different quarterbacks in terms of like conservative versus aggressive in terms of how far they're pushing it down the field um so so yeah with Derek Carr um you can you can get pressure without needing to send additional guys. And I think that was kind of Flores' strategy a little bit was he was like, you know, I don't need to send five, six guys. Let me send three in Harrison Smith um, on like a sim pressure uh, or let me send three in like um, Jordan Hicks or something. Um, so uh, that I feel like it was kind of a unique game plan that I think is specific to Derek Carr. And that's, you know, that's what good defensive coaching is. It's like you don't just blitz for the sake of blitzing, but you blitz because, hey, like, this is the one, this is the way we can limit what the quarterback does, or this quarterback does worse against 
pressure or this blitz look. The other thing that really struck me is they didn't need to blitz because they were so good at manipulating the Saints' pass protection rules yes. that they didn't need to send additional guys. Like, how many times did Metellus just have, like, a free shot at the quarterback? So many times in this game. And part of that was they're so good at tying the snap and waiting to declare, like, waiting until the, the quarterback hitches that knee up uh, to say, hey, I'm ready for the snap, also, and that's when they finally declare. Also, Metellus ate running backs alive in this game. Yeah. Yeah, the way he's able to, like, absorb contact and just sort of, like, keep running at the quarterback, really incredible. I mean, there were a couple times where, like, Kamara would, like, cut block and dive at his knees, and Mattel somehow just, like, not only stays upright, but, like, continues his momentum towards the quarterback. So, um, you know, part I think part of the reason Flores is blitzing a lot is because, like, these secondary guys that they have, and Ivan Pace and Josh Metellus and Harrison Smith, you know, they're not, like, Daniil Hunter, but they're you get them one-on-one with a running back, and these guys get home, so... Um, he's putting them in a situation to, 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 you know, good coaching is putting your players, uh, um, you know, emphasizing the things they do well and allowing them to be put in situations where they can show it off. And that's kind of what they're doing. So I, I did, but I did maybe just spend a moment on it in a little more particularity. Like um, before offenses, um, every time the center lines up, he'll call out the mic and he'll set the protection yep. based on who the mic is. Um, and so a lot of the times, like the Vikings would respond to that and say like, okay, um, I'm going to have Harrison Smith line up as like a two eye, but then as soon as the quarterback gets ready to snap, Harrison Phillips was going to move over to a zero technique. So that way he can completely occupy the center. We know that they're doing a half slide based on their calling, like the mic on this guy. Um, and that'll allow Josh Metellus, who only creeps down to the line of scrimmage at the very end. So he's not in the protection call when they call the mic. It allows Metellus to sort of get that free rusher up the A gap. And that's, Going back to Mike Zimmer, you know, pressure up the A-gap is the most dangerous for the quarterback because it's the it's straightest line is the quickest route to the quarterback. So if you can scheme that up consistently, quarterback really has no chance to do anything. So I, I spent a lot of, we spent a lot of time talking about all the great things Kevin O'Connell did on the offensive side. But I think particularly um, being able to scheme up free rushers without taking away guys in, in, in the holes, in, in the zones in coverage, uh, that it was a really impressive job. And I feel like, um, going forward, every running back is just going to like, their head is going to be spinning, trying to figure out like, how do I, how do I stop this Brian Flores thing? Uh, these blitzes because uh, he tests them. And like, there were, there were mistakes that Kamara made and, and some of their backs made in like pass protection that allowed guys to get home. So yep. uh, it was really, really impressive stuff from Flores and the entire pass rush team unit as a whole. Yeah, it was awesome stuff. And those late shifts actually have another benefit, right? Because they caused, they've caused false starts. They actually caused multiple false starts in this game. They caused a false start in that first and goal last week. Um, you were the first person I saw call it out. I, I don't know if you caught it before Brian Flores' press conference last week or after. but he And I don't know if you actually caught that press conference at all. But he mentioned during that press conference that Harrison Phillips is the shift coordinator. He might have called it the STEM coordinator. I can't remember. Um, for those late defensive line shifts. So he actually calls out when they're supposed to shift, and it's worked really well in the past couple of games because what they do is they move laterally, right, to what you said. He, Phillips might move from a 2-I to a 0 technique or something like that. They move laterally, and in those critical situations, the opposing offense is very much on edge, right? They're trying to get any sort of advantage they can in a 4th and 1 situation because they want to drive your opponent off the ball. That's how you can convert those downs on first and goal. That's how you convert those downs. So when they see the player in front of them move, they're more likely to flinch in that situation than they would be on a normal down. Um, 
Rashid Shahid got it once because he was actually watching the ball, saw like three Vikings move violently at once, and that just caused a natural reaction in him, right? Like it, it just kind of caused the jump reaction. Uh, the other time, you know, on the fourth and one where the where the Saints were going to go for it with Taysom Hill in the backfield, the left tackle and the right guard and the left guard both went. So credit to you, Nick. I think you were the first person to call it out in in both games. Um, if you hadn't seen that Flores thing. Yeah, and, and you know, Flores didn't like invent it. It's not the first time sure. somebody does like a late shift. To, uh, but the how it's really effective because it's like it's like the 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 coordination and the suddenness, which is like you also have to be careful about it because you can't just like jerk for the sake of jerking and and fainting and offsides because defenses can actually get like called delay of game penalties against yes. them if they do that. It happened last year to um, I think the Eagles where like. Um, somebody like stepped into the neutral zone or something and the, it was called delay of game because it caused the offense to false start. You can't like cause the offense to false start, but if you're doing a legal football move, which is a shift is, is, is a legal move. Um, then if the offense flinches or false starts, that's completely legal and it's on the offense. And I feel like it's, it's like clever chicanery. Like, you know, Brian Flores spent some time with a rule book this off season to figure out like, Hey, if I coordinate, like, three guys making a very big sudden and that's the other thing too like these are not like i'm moving one technique over like harrison phillips will like move over a gap and a half with these shifts so like you'll have three guys make very very quick sudden moves it looks like um it looks like uh the, the defense is getting ready to snap except it's just a shift but it's causing guys to fall start pretty consistently now in very critical downs so uh, last week it was first and one from the one yard line at the goal line this week it was a fourth and one at midfield mm -hmm. where they were totally ready to go for it. Both of those situations last week, we get a false start. It was a big part in um, that getting them to holding them to a field goal on the drive that started at the one yard line. And then this week, the fourth and one false start um, after that, they got the false start. They punted it so that, you know, it was basically a turnover out of these out of this turnover and then four points last week. So um, it's a little thing, but like those a lot of those little coaching things add up and the way they're able to do it is like really cool. And the way that like um it's, it also like has, it dovetails and has a synergy with like everything else Brian Flores does as a blitzer. Like I don't think if like Ed Donatel were doing these these late shifts or whatever, it would have the same effect because like with Brian Flores, everybody's always really worried about like minding their P's and Q's and protection and who am I protecting and who am I blocking and um, uh, who's going to be in my gap or whatever. So the fact that like Flores is is constantly throwing crap at you that like on these short yardage situations you're particularly on edge, um, it kind of all fits together. So really good coaching and good stuff. Yeah. So the next thing we wanted to talk about, and this is maybe more of a minor point, but I think it's just something that exudes the uh, what Flores has instilled in this defense is the Vikings were great tackling, particularly on quick passes in this game. Um, Ivan Pace did it again, right, where he had a situation on a screen where he beat two linemen. Uh, Caleb Evans also deserves a ton of credit on that play in particular for coming around the edge on the screen and making the tackle on the on Kamara. The other screen that the Saints tried to run to Kamara was a similar result. Makai Blackman came around the edge and made a tackle, which is great because those Kamara screens are really effective for the Saints in general. Like, he's always been a really effective weapon in the passing game, and the Vikings just completely shut that down in this game. Um, I wrote an article for zone coverage. It'll, it'll come out. It'll probably be out before you hear this. If you listen in the morning, if you listen to it overnight, it, it'll come out, uh, Wednesday morning, but, uh, 
I in doing that, it was it was talking about Flores' defense in general, but in doing that, I found out the Vikings allowed only 3.2 yards after the catch per play in this game. Um if you look at NFL teams over the course of the season, the worst is the Carolina Panthers. Like most teams hover around five in terms of yards after the catch per play. The worst is the Carolina Panthers at 4.2, right? And they have absolutely nobody in their receiving core. I mean, we know that we saw that early in the year. Nobody who can create anything kind of has any sort of wiggle on that team. So that's not surprising. This was worse than that by a full yard. Right, so that's just a really impressive performance by the Vikings of clicking and closing on those plays and in those situations. Um, and every single player on the defense got in on it. It was crazy. Like Harrison Smith had a play. Um, Troy Dye coming in, you know, helping replace Jordan Hicks, who was injured for most of the game. On that play where Kevin O'Connell challenged and it got ruled a, a catch and then down by contact, that was Troy Dye making that play. Um, you know, uh, Makai Blackman, Andrew Booth, Byron Murphy on that screen early in the game hit it immediately. It was a tackle for a loss against Rashid Shahid, um, who's also a very effective screenplay, right? And extremely fast. Uh, who am I missing? Theo Jackson made a play. I think the only one who didn't was Cam Bynum, who's playing deep almost the entire game, right? So he never had an opportunity to make the play. And he made a tackle around the line of scrimmage in the run game. So it was really just an impressive all-around performance by the Vikings defense and secondary tackling in this game for me. Um, and I just wanted to shout that out. Like that's what made cars low a dot, not effective and why the saints weren't scoring any points early in the game. Um, so with that, sorry, Nick's been having internet troubles throughout the whole podcast a little bit, it appears. Uh, but we're going to flip it over to some of the coverage disguises that Flores ran because this runs hand in hand with the blitzes we were talking about earlier, right? The one that stands out to me in particular against Carr was one in the third quarter. Um, it was when Jonathan Bullard got his strip sack. And on that play, the Vikings were in a cover three shell at the snap, right? right? And they flipped to Tampa two. So in cover three, you are expecting the outside corners to play deep third zones. The Saints had vertical routes on both of the outside plays. Um, and you have the, the deep safety over the middle. What you want to do against cover three is work the high-low that the Saints had, which was basically a uh, a drive concept. You had a, you had a crossing route coming low underneath, and then you had a dig by a tight end behind it. The thing was, in Tampa 2, you actually have linebackers at two different levels. So Ivan Pace was the Tampa player. He was deeper. He was covering the dig. They were covering the drive underneath. So Carr thinks it's cover 3 pre-snap. That's what he diagnoses. Doesn't change or reconfirm his diagnosis post-snap. Sees that nothing's over the middle. Holds onto the ball. Kind of panics. Doesn't get anything there. Meanwhile, with the two cover 2 safeties... Both of the both of the seam routes were like wide open. I think it would have been a touchdown if he'd seen it and thrown it. Honestly, maybe his eyes bring the player over. You know, Byron Murphy drops back into a deep half zone. Cameron Bynum runs from the middle of the field all the way over to the right. Um, but honestly, I think he probably could have had a touchdown on that play, and it turned into a strip sack, which unfortunately the Saints recovered, of course, because the Vikings can't recover a fumble to save their lives. But um, just a really neat coverage disguise, and he was doing that all day, and it threw Carr through a loop. I mean, honestly, 
I would probably expect a player with the experience of Carr to be able, able to diagnose that cover those coverages, especially when the Vikings just run it a ton all year anyway. But he wasn't able to it, and uh, it was it was just good defensive play calling by the Vikings. Yeah, we talk a lot about the illusion of complexity. It's kind of like a buzzword. It was the phrase Kevin O'Connell used when he was first hired by the Vikings in his press conference. Um, but I really feel like these last couple weeks that's kind of been a driving principle for the Viking success. On the offensive side, um, they're getting into a lot of simple concepts that Josh Dobbs knows how to read, but they're doing it from different personnel groupings, different personnel looks like. They would get into a flood, con- a three-level flood concept, but the Y would start out and do like a reverse pivot, and he would be the Im- intermediate read, which is like a lot of times those flood concepts, everybody's coming from the same side or something. Um, this way you had guys coming, you know, somebody coming from the backside as your deep, uh, like your deep over route or whatever. So they're getting into, ultimately, that's, it's the, it's a, it's the same read for the quarterback regardless. Um, but it, it's a way to get into it that makes it a little bit more challenging for the defense to cover, especially like in, you know, man, you know, those pivot routes are tough against man cover teams, which the Saints are. Uh, it's the same thing on defense. Like Brian Flores, the coverage shells he runs, it's like a lot of two and three and like, you don't know necessarily know if the middle field's open or closed, like, but they're not. This isn't Donatel where they're running like cover eight or something, where it's like really complicated corners, uh, you know, cover seven stuff. Like, it's a lot of like uh, you'll see a lot of Tampa two, cover two, and cover three on on defense, and it's kind of. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the way the way he's able to like use those, it's kind of like um. Whereas Donatel last year was like a pitcher with like five mediocre pitches, Flores is like he's got two really good pitches, and but they're both heaters. Uh, you know, he's got like a really yeah. good fastball and really good. Job. And that's all. And it's the same thing. Like he'll either drop eight or he'll bring six. And it's the same thing with his coverage. Shows. It's, either, it's either cover three or cover two, but like, you never really know which one it is. And so it, it leads to some holes in coverage when, when teams know what to do or know what they're looking for. But a lot of times they don't, or, or it throws them off. And I feel like um, it's allowed a, a relatively young defense with a lot of new pieces um, to gel and be able to like go out there and perform really well uh, while also making things harder for the other side. And that's kind of what all the illusion of complexity is all about. It's simple for us, hard for you. And I, I feel like that that sort of coverage disguises, you know, it's just like, you know, two invert or whatever, or like show, show two, invert to three or whatever. It's not that complicated for a defense to execute, but for a quarterback, it can make it complicated. And then you throw in like the, we're showing, it's a zero look, but we're dropping eight. That's also, you throw that in there. Um, it becomes a lot more complicated to the to the other side, even though um, I'm sure Brian Flores' play, play sheet is really not that long or complicated compared to some of the other defenses in the league you've seen. So um, that's another example of like good coaching because good coaching isn't making it complicated um, as possible. A lot of it is like a lot of really good coaching is comes down to like really simple coaching points. Mm-hmm. Um, so and I feel like that's kind of um, another way in which Flores is really elevating this defense. So. Yeah, the Vikings do like very similar things from from like a wide variety of different looks on defense right and that's a good formula for success on offense like Shanahan has kind of mastered that right for the for the 49ers in terms of running similar plays just from different looks using unique personnel the Vikings are that version on defense right where they're they're running kind of simple stuff overall right like they're not asking a ton of their defensive backs in coverage because it's so much zone coverage and so much safe zone coverage with like tampa two and drop eight cover three and stuff like that right like that's not stuff you're gonna get beat over the top they don't run a ton of man coverage they're like one of the bottom teams in the league like 29th or something and how often they run man coverage right 
but they're doing it from so many different looks that it throws quarterbacks off and usually makes them hesitate before they're able to make something and make a throw. And that's helping the defense perform well overall. Um, so that's been a lot. Uh, the one thing I wanted to get to is like, even the touchdowns that the Saints scored in the second half, like, I don't feel like we're negative plays for the defense. Like, that's just something I wanted to bring up. Like, yeah. Byron Murphy, I think, had good coverage on both of those plays. Maybe he reacts to the ball a little bit late, but he gets his hand up in the area where you want to, and the receivers just make strong plays. Like, that Olave catch was absolutely absurd. The A.T. Perry catch was more of an out-muscling of Murphy more so than like just a completely absurd catch, but it was still a really, really strong catch by a player who's like six, four to Murphy's five, nine, right? Like, I guess maybe it was also the most insane, yeah. the most James Winston throw ever, like right. to roll out all the way to the left side of the field. And, and it's be like, like, screw it. I'm going to chuck this to the other right side. Like the, even the all 22 camera operators, like he's not like, you couldn't see the yeah. catch because the camera didn't pan fast enough. It's like nobody, nobody would throw that. Um, but both were just contested catches that, like, Byron Murphy got a very good contest. Like, his hand was in there, and yeah. on, the sec- on the second touchdown, it dislodged the ball. Just the receiver managed to regain possession coming down. So uh, you're going to lose some of those 50-50 balls occasionally, and those just happen to be two extremely costly 50-50 balls they lost. But, like, as, as like a coach, I'm sure you look at that player and are like, well, you did everything right, just sometimes you lose 50-50 balls. Mm-hmm. So I don't have, like, a, those aren't, it's it's, you know, or 16 points because they got the two-point conversions too it's two touchdowns very costly plays but like in terms of projecting this defense going forward those don't really make me lose any sleep at all so i was kind of fine no absolutely like to me i I don't think Jameis winston was really playing quarterback honestly he was dropping back and throwing the ball to his first read like he was just he was just chucking the ball up whether it was a good idea or not i can't believe that PFF graded him kind of positively and they only gave him one turnover worthy play because I guess they didn't consider the Makai Blackman interception, which he just chalked up like just a jugs machine, like (laughs) right to spraying it downfield wherever it was a blitz by the Vikings. Right. And when they blitz, they play very soft man coverage behind it. So you can't throw deep on him. And he just chucked it up and Makai Blackman's right there. Like that's an interception all the way. The Murphy pick obviously was bad. There was another one that he threw into coverage. that should have been an interception. Like, I don't understand. Or like the Bynum one, they probably didn't count as an interception. I think that was, that was from Winston, right? Where Bynum got the interception and they reviewed it and it clearly wasn't a pick. Like, man, this guy was literally just throwing the ball to his first read, whether there was coverage or not. Like, he just didn't read anything at all, and I I don't understand um, how that's a way that you can play quarterback in the NFL. I mean, obviously, it's not really a sustainable way, right? He's not a starter. Uh, In a weird way, if you're the Saints trying to claw back from a 24-3 deficit, like, you probably want the guy with a 20-yard average depth of target over the guy with a 5-yard average depth of target. Winston's problem was he was just, like, chucking it downfield with, like, very bad accuracy, very big misses, and um, he was kind of bailed out by the the talent of his receivers at the catch point, um, and like a little bit of luck too. Um, but yeah. yeah, I mean, it kind of worked out for the Saints in terms of their second half performance once James got got in there. But also, like those interceptions also count and sealed the game for the Vikings too. And um, I'm not like Winston going out there and scoring a couple touchdowns doesn't concern me. I will say. You're going to get guys chucking it downfield, and I'm surprised we haven't seen this more. When you do those zero looks, 
you're kind of guaranteeing one-on-one coverage on the outside because even if you drop back to like Tampa too, the safety's not going to be able to get there in time to help at all yep. with like a like a go route. So I'm surprised we haven't seen more of that. But like, so that I guess is a concern. But like Byron Murphy was able to recover really well and and get well, coverage on the on. So the Chargers tried that multiple times and it hit on the one Mike Evans catch that was like an absurd catch and Byron Murphy has stayed over the top of those on like every single route every single time this year. Um, I think he's been really, really effective in staying over the top of those vertical routes. So like, I I think that's a credit to Murphy. Why more of those haven't hit uh, this season personally. Byron Murphy, clearly our best cornerback. I don't really care what PFF has to say about any of our, I don't really care what PFF has to say about cornerbacks generally. <laughs> yeah. Because um, when you're not like, if you're judging a cover two corner the same as a cover one corner, like that's just, it's, I don't know what to do with this information. It's, it's useless to me. So It's wild. I don't understand it at all. Like it's. Like if you have to shadow a wide receiver one in, in you know, man everywhere he goes coverage and, and you're getting like downgraded for that. Meanwhile, a, a cover two corner is just like, I don't have the flat. I don't have the middle of the field. I don't have the back half. I'm just going to cover my my little like happy little corner here and get like you know an elite grade. So, like this is this is not helpful information. So um, I I like PFF. We but you know the just yeah. I see a lot of people use their grades and without context. So um, but we saw some other uh, good cornerback play. Andrew Booth is getting more and more run um, absolutely with with the defense now. Um, Caleb Evans has had some. Uh, He's had some mistakes lately, but he, I feel like he had a pretty good game too. And then Mackay Blackman's kind of come on really strong as well. I think well, every so. single corner played well in this game. And like on the statue, like I get downgrading Byron Murphy for this game, right? Like he allowed two touchdowns. They were, I thought, fine plays by him, but ultimately, you know, you're the corner. You should probably break up that pass, right? Like it's, it's a great play by the offense, but you know, like to me, it's a great play by the offense, but I can see, you know, saying like, Hey, maybe you shouldn't have been on the, on the downside of that. Booth, I thought, looked sticky in man coverage. Blackman looked sticky in man coverage, too. There was a particular third down rep, I noticed, where they both had to cover crossing routes. Uh, Blackman was a shallow cross. Booth was more of a dig. And they both did a really good job staying in the back hip pocket of the receiver on those routes. That's a really difficult ask for a corner. It's one of the most difficult things you can ask for a corner. Obviously, um, I thought... Booth played his own responsibilities very tight. Blackman, obviously the interception, like that's great. First career interception for him. Really good to see. Um, Evans, to your point, the fir- the very first play of the game, right, where he just, av- or for the Saints at least, where he just absolutely wallops Michael Thomas, right, and knocks the ball loose. Like that was kind of fun on trap coverage. I thought he played pretty well in this game. Really, I don't have, I, I don't have any complaints about the way the corners played. Um... On the defensive line, you know, we already shouted out Harrison Phillips for his very nice uh, coordinating or uh, forcing false starts and kind of getting the blitzes to hit by confusing the offense. Uh, you know, he's kind of in charge of that situation. But um, he made a really nice play on that third down run stop to set up that fourth down that we ended up forcing the false start on. Uh, he controls the center. So, like, it's another kind of late shift situation or stunt after the snap. Jordan Hicks, who unfortunately ended up getting injured in the game, right? He has a, a kind of shin thing. I forget what the name of, of the syndrome that he developed throughout the course of the game is, but it's not good. He ended up going on IR. Um, you know, 
shoots the backside A-gap because Harrison Phillips crosses the face of the center to the frontside A-gap on the run. When Harrison Phillips crosses face, the running back, it was Jawal Williams in this case, cuts to the backside A-gap, but there's nobody there to block Hicks, who has a free run, and Harrison Phillips dominates the center to the point where he's able to get back into the play anyway. So he's just been playing great in run defense, um, and it, and it's really important. I realize that he doesn't give a ton in, in the pass rush juice perspective, but he's got that going. And then the Hunter sack and the Wanham sack. Like, the Wanham sack was great. I think DJ Wanham's playing a lot better as a pass rusher this year. I don't think, like, he's maybe necessarily a starting caliber edge, particularly because of his run defense. But I really like how he's played as a pass rusher. Yeah, he's got some juice and some bend, um, which I'm not used to really seeing around him. I mean, I, that, that Saints left tackle, Andrew Speed, is that it? He had a rough yeah. game. Um, but that, that was a high... From the, the pass rush planning, he looks really good out there and is really valuable. And I'm very glad that we have DJ Wanham on those snaps um, and not, you know, uh, Pat Jones, who also can do some good things. But, like, Wanham is a weapon on pass rushing downs, and that's fun to have. Um, I also have to really shout out Daniil Hunter, who was beating Ryan Ramchick pretty consistently throughout the game. Yes. In my mind, Ramchick has an argument as the best right tackle in the game. For Hunter to do that, and he's had his number. This isn't the first time he's been beating Ryan Ramchick. That sack he had on a spin move was was about as clean of a high quality sack against a very high level opponent as you'll see at the NFL level. So, um, and that wasn't his only play. I mean, PFF would downgrade this play, but the zone read with um, Taysom Hill in there, where Hill correctly pulls it, and Hunter because Hunter is chasing the running yes. back, and so Taysom Hill pull, keeps it and runs to the other side, and Hunter is still able to, like, he's the conflict player, but he's still able to, like, catch chase down Taysom Hill. He misses the tackle, but the fact that, like, he's able to, like, you correctly pull it, and I'm still going to make you wrong, and that's insane to do at the NFL level with, like, the, you know, it's it, all NFL athletes are great athletes, but Daniil Hunter is in his own stratosphere. Um, Hunter's, then, uh, Hunter's tackling grade is, like, very bad, and it's, like... Dude, like, his tackling grade's bad because he's getting to situations that other players don't even get to. It's like the Derek Jeter, it's like the reverse of the Derek Jeter fielding thing or whatever in baseball. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, a really good player in run defense. Um, He had a lot of other really, that, he beat Ryan Ramchick with a a very similar spin move on the first play from scrimmage. And it just, you know, Derek Carr was getting rid of the ball immediately. So, um, this was a really impressive game from Daniil Hunter all around. Uh, so I just wanted to shout him out. Like, Neil Hunter, I feel like, is the one true blue-chip player. I mean, I wish I could say Harrison Smith were still in that category, but probably not. But, like, um, the way Flores has everybody playing together, it's like Daniil Hunter and, like, a, a, a ragtag misfits. But it's all kind of coming together. And they're, yeah. they're I think, ninth in EPA per play against, which is, like, it's, it's so much better than last year's defense, despite the fact that we lost Zadarius Smith, who's a good player when he's healthy. And we lost Eric Hendricks, who's also still a good player. Yeah. And we lost a lot of pieces. Um, but, uh, so, you know, just more and more. Not only are the Vikings ninth in EPA per play against so far as the season, if you back weight it, so weight it towards the more recent games, which Timo Risk from PFF did, I saw him tweet it out. The Vikings are fifth and they're first in the NFC, right? So they're ahead of the Cowboys. They're ahead of the Niners. They're only behind like the Chiefs, Ravens, Browns, and somebody else in the AFC. I forget who it is. Um, but it's just it's just been a really impressive performance during the five game winning streak for the Vikings. Um, 
one final note on that hunter sack obviously came immediately after he got his helmet ripped off by uh andres pete and uh, i i saw you post it he was certainly responsible for illegal hands to the face on that play it's not something that was visible from the broadcast at all but you can see he get he gets his hands up in kind of like the neck chin area of pete um However, uh, you're still not allowed to rip somebody's helmet off by grabbing their face mask. I think that's a little bit illegal. And a side note, um, so I had originally said in response to that that a 15-yard penalty overrides a 5-yard penalty. I looked in the rulebook a little bit more. That's not exactly true. In this case, they would have been offsetting penalties because the 5-yard penalty, illegal use of hands, hands to the face, also carries an automatic first down. Um... So because that leads to an automatic first down, the penalty, the 15-yard uh, face mask penalty, which is what it should have been on Andres Pete, it's not illegal hands to the face. When you grab somebody's face mask, it's still a face mask uh, from the offensive lineman. Um, does not offset. So, like, interesting rulebook quirk there in case people were, were interested. Uh, that 15 versus 5 non-offset does not happen all that often in the NFL. So it's kind of it's kind of weird to almost see one in the wild. Kindred Skulls getting out the rule book for you multiple times this podcast. We're, we're doing the, the homework here. So. Yes. Yes. So, um, now that we've spent an hour and 15 minutes on the Vikings-Saints game, let's look ahead to the Broncos game. Um, it's on Sunday Night Football in Denver, so the nation gets treated to another primetime Broncos game. If you guys didn't have enough from the final two minutes of the game last night, um, or Monday night, I suppose I should say. Uh, Interesting about the Broncos, they've won like three of their last four games or something like that, four of their last five games. Uh, They look, you know, actually pretty decent on offense. Like Russell Wilson kind of has it back a little bit this year. His numbers have been very, very efficient. I do think he's taking a bunch of unnecessary sacks. That just seems to be a Russ characteristic at this point. I mean, it was just characteristic with the Seahawks. So who are we kidding there? Um, that two minute, like they got completely bailed out right in the two minute drill. I, I think one thing with the Broncos is they didn't seem to have like the, Bills were zero blitzing at the end, and the Broncos didn't seem to have legit answers to that zero blitz. Like, the the pass interference call that Russ hucked up, hucked up was against the zero blitz, but the corner bit at the sticks, right, in that scenario, which is not something the Vikings do. We just talked about how they play over the top, so I don't expect the you know them to be able to just throw the ball up and get a bunch of free pass interference yards against this Vikings defense I think they're going to have to come up to with more sophisticated answers but I'd love to see the Vikings blitz more in this game because I don't think the Broncos respond well to it even if Russ is playing a little bit up to his normal level and Cortland Cortland Sutton makes like some absolutely absurd catches too like that touchdown was ridiculous yeah, I mean, you can never underestimate a Sean Payton offense. And Russ is, you know, I feel like um, people kind of wrote them off a little bit early because they were in such a funk last year and they didn't get off to a hot start this year either. But, like, Russ is still a good quarterback. He just, he's always had limitations. And Pete Carroll and those offensive coordinators in Seattle are always good at, like, focusing on the things Russ does well and trying to minimize, you know, the sacks that he runs into and his... Um, the way he likes to throw, you know, moonshots down the sideline instead of, you know, in posts over the middle of the field. So um, it's a good offense. And Sean Payton is, in my mind, still a top five 
play caller in the NFL, top five offensive coordinator. He throws a lot of different things at you. He doesn't have Taysom Hill with him anymore, but you know he'll he'll break out the fullback. He'll break break out the twelve thirteen personnel. Um, they've got weapons who can win in different ways. Obviously, you mentioned Sutton. You know he's got all six four inches of him. Good physical receiver that can be a matchup problem for the Vikings cornerbacks. Jerry Judy. Um, not a complete receiver, but he's still very good at it in, in, in generating explosive separation in his routes. Um, uh, Javante Williams is a very tough running back to bring down. Uh, he's got a lot of juice. Uh, they've got a good offensive line and Russell Wilson. We know like the things he does well, he's still a very accurate quarterback. He's got a good arm. Um, and he, he has limitations in how he sees the field and his, his pocket awareness. So I feel like they can try and take advantage of that. But at the end of the day, I feel like you can't underestimate this offense. And I feel like the defense to me is even scarier because they've got so many veteran pieces. I don't want to steal your thunder too much here. Um, but Pat Sertan, in my opinion, is like in the elite category of cornerbacks. Yes. You know, somebody I would trust to be um, man up one-on-one against the elite wide receivers. He's very, very few of those corners that, that I would trust. And he's one of them along with, you know, the sauce gardens of the world. Um, both of their safeties on the older edge, but both, you know, Justin Simmons forever has been a, an elite safety um, and Jackson as well. Uh, their their defensive line doesn't give me as much pause. Um, so maybe this is a game where, um, you know, they can try and get the run game started a little bit. Or maybe this is a TJ Hawkinson game because I'm not sure um, they have a good matchup weapon for, um, you know, TJ Hawkinson. But like if Pat Sertan's shadowing Addison, they're not really a shadow team. They probably run a little bit more zone. Uh, although mm-hmm. you would think if they had the horses for man, they would run it. But uh, Vance Joseph is doing more, um, you know, too high um, zone zone. I mean, he's not a Fangio guy, but it's kind of that that kind of flavor of stuff um, that maybe this is a Hawkinson game. But um, really good back seven, really good um, offensive bones, architecture, fundamentals, capable of doing a lot of damage. Good offensive line, too. They got a lot of good pieces there. So um, and it's in Denver. So. The, the, the advantage we have going for us is um, uh, Broncos are coming off a short week, I suppose. But, like, this is a good Broncos team. They're on a heck of a roll right now. They just beat um, the, the Chiefs by multiple yeah. scores. And they're coming off, you know, it was a very fluky, funky win with the Bills, but they beat the Chiefs in the Bills. So um, <laughs> this is, this is going to be another tough test for the Vikings, too. So um, I, I am not surprised that Vegas has the Broncos favored. Uh, it's only minus two, which I would think being in Denver, it might be even more. But I don't know. I have a lot of respect for this Broncos team, even if um, Vegas thinks that it's kind of close to a coin flip. So uh, they can beat you in a lot of different ways, and they've got good coaches, and they've got good talent. So that's usually a combination for a good team, even if the record or the EPA per play doesn't necessarily show it. Yeah, for sure. Like, I, I never thought the Broncos were, like, the worst team in the league that many people kind of made them out to be because it was a little bit fluky in their early games and they just weren't able to convert in place when they were still kind of having a little bit of an efficient offense with Russell Wilson. And I thought I always kind of thought Russ was playing decent. Obviously, their defense early on was very, very bad, right? Like, you don't let up 70 points in a football game without just playing complete garbage defense. But they do seem to have turned around a little bit recently. Like, I don't watch the Broncos on a weekly basis so I can't say you know what exactly was the reason for the turnaround but to your point they've got solid secondary players and and you know whenever you have a shutdown corner and Patrick Sertan who can kind of shut down one side of the offense that's really helpful um their linebackers Josie Jewell and Alex Singleton like they're not household names they're not world beaters but I think they're solid players who, who have sound coverage like 
I would have liked the Vikings to bring Josie Jewell in, you know, watching, I guess, a little bit of the Donatel defense, right, from from the previous year with Donatel last year to kind of help learn the system and, and be a linebacker as opposed to somebody like Jordan Hicks, right? Um, Vikings didn't end up doing that. He's stuck with the uh, Broncos, and I think he's a startable player. Uh, one player to watch out for on the Broncos defensive line to me is Baron Browning. Uh, Browning kind of did a reverse Anthony Barr. I, I guess maybe he did a Micah Parsons, right? Where he was an off-ball linebacker in college at Ohio State and transitioned to edge in the NFL. He was injured for the majority. Uh, like, he was injured for the first. He's only played for the last three weeks. Let me let me phrase it that way. I was trying to figure out a better way to phrase it. Um, but he has two sacks. He had both sacks in the Kansas City game. Um, and he's just been a dominant player. Well, the dominance may be a stretch, but he's been a quality edge rusher since the Broncos moved him to the edge rush p- position the last couple years. So he's somebody to watch out for, particularly with the speed rush. Um, Zach Allen on the defensive line is kind of like a, if Dean Lowry was good type player, I want to say. Maybe, maybe a Jonathan Bullard plus, right, for to make Vikings comparisons specifically. Um, you know, they, they did give him a pretty significant contract. Uh, you know, I, I guess it's in Denver. It's probably going to be a little bit of a colder weather game, right? Like it's starting to snow in the Denver area, in the Colorado, in the mountains, that sort of thing. So you may and, – and teams can overcome that, but that may be a challenge – for the Vikings offense, you know, being on a road environment where the crowd's really invested. Like, I feel like, you know, the Falcons game was a road game, obviously. And I think there were a lot of Falcons fans there. I don't think the Falcons fans are particularly energized at this point. And I don't think they did much in the game to really energize them where it was truly a difficult environment for the Vikings to play in on the road, right? The Denver Broncos, when they're rolling, can be a really difficult environment for an opposing team to play in. Um, in terms of communication and that sort of thing. So I do think that that might be make an impact on the Vikings offense, especially with Dobbs still being new in this offense, right? And we got to make sure Dobbs can keep rolling in terms of his, uh, you know, his hot streak right now, right? Because I think there may be a point where this comes back to earth a little bit, but we'll, we'll have to wait and see, right? We're going to ride that wave as long as it, as long as it lasts. Right. So I think that's kind of what we're looking at. Um, you know, two things that could help the Vikings in this game. Obviously, Jordan Hicks being out is a big deal. I think the Vikings lacked lack a body right now to be able to take on blocks in a 5-1 front where, I, where you kind of have to take on a block from an opposing offensive lineman. Like, Pace is great at getting around blocks. I don't know if he's going to take on blocks one-on-one. So, the Vikings signed old friend Anthony Barr back to the practice squad. I, I doubt he'll be up to speed in one week and, like, play in this game against the Broncos. But it's something to look for forward to moving forward as kind of a Hicks replacement. I think he'll be a stout run defender in the middle. I don't think we should ask him to do a significant amount in coverage, but that's kind of what I thought about Hicks too. So I'm not too worried about it. I'm kind of excited to see if we can get him free on a blitz or something like like the old days, right? Where he's just destroying running backs on that double E gap pressure. Um, and then also something that can help the Vikings, even if even if Patrick Sertan is in the game, is if Justin Jefferson comes back, he is eligible to come back from the hamstring injury. Um, they are The Vikings are absolutely playing it safe, and they absolutely should. But I actually kind of think there's a decent shot he's going to come back this week. I don't know how you feel about either of those two things, Nick. 
Yeah, this would certainly be a great game to do it because, you know, if you can get Justin Jefferson out there, one, how great is that? But two, like Jordan Addison versus Pat Sertan is a very different prospect than Jordan Addison versus, uh, 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 is it Fabian Moreau is the other cornerback uh, yeah, opposite him? So, um, like, that's not to mention, like, you, you can also scheme up Justin Jefferson against Fabian Moreau. Now, like, not not to that Fabian Moreau is like a terrible corner or anything, but he's not Pat Sertan. So um, that's, uh, it, it would be a huge boost. So if there's a game where you could, um, put him back. Obviously, you don't want to rush him. You want to. Justin Jefferson's far more important long term. But I feel like this is a bit of a coin flip game. Justin Jefferson could be a difference maker in this one. He's a difference maker in every game, but particularly in this one, uh, with the secondary we're going up against, the defense we're going up against, um, it it would it would be great to see him back out there this week. I think particularly. So, um, will be would be hopefully he can come back because that would be awesome. Bar I know probably won't be up there, but uh, was one. It's just the vibes. Purely, yeah. purely from the vibe, it's great to have Barr back. I've always been, I've always loved Barr. I also think he's, I don't want to call him Wash, but he's not the player he was that, obviously, oh, for uh, sure. he was drafted as a first rounder or signed for an extension or anything. You know, like Jordan Hicks, Jordan Hicks is another like Uber athlete drafted high. Um, and now you can clearly see um, teams are picking on him, you know, designing crossers against him because he's not the athlete that he once was. Uh, Barr is the same way. You know, I don't want him matching up in man coverage on anybody. But like, yeah, I mean, I, I can totally see him being like the Jordan Hicks thumper up the middle um, playing, you know, hooks in defense or, you know, um, uh, buzzing out to the flat or something. Uh, or, you know, and, and Brian Flores even mentioned, like, he can do a little bit of what DJ Wanham does, too. So, like, they could use him as a pass rusher against offensive tackles. Barr has the length and the explosion to do that, too. So, um, yeah, there, there, are, there are definitely ways in which I can see them fitting Barr into this defense, even though he's not exactly what he once was. Um, and even if nothing else, it's very cool to see him back in purple, although... I, I saw that his number is going to be number 54 and that just feels wrong. So yeah, <laughs> that, that a... hurts a lot. Like figure something out with Andre Carter. I don't care. Like I, I don't know what we have to do to get him back in 55, but like, I mean, okay. First of all, obviously we all know he and Kendricks are great friends. So on, on one hand, it's kind of cool that he gets to wear 54 and it's like a Kendricks thing right it's like a bar kendrick's thing which is kind of cool in my head but at the same time like it's wrong and he needs to wear 55 i don't know how we get that to work out exactly and then i can bring back out my bar jersey so you know i can't i, I don't i don't want to get a bar 54 jersey so um, well i got i got a kendrick's to... 54 jersey so i'll just i'll just make do with that swap the names swap the letters yeah, yeah. so Anyway, I think with that, we're going to wrap it up for today. Um, lots of good content once again. We keep going long on these, but it's it's just a lot of fun. And there's so much to talk about with how well we think the Vikings coaching staff is doing, how interesting the Vikings offense with the Josh Dobbs situation is, and honestly, how interesting the defense is, right? There's so much stuff happening with the defense. It's It's been great to talk about. So... I'm Matt Fries. You can find me at Fries Football. He's Nick Olson. You can find him at Nick Olson NFL. Our co-host Greg is at You've Been Gregged. We are at Kindred Skulls on Twitter. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. We're also available on YouTube. And Skull Vikings. Skull. Cool. Go, oh, baby. The first round corner wouldn't do us any harm. Oh, another first round corner wouldn't do us any harm. Oh, another first round corner wouldn't do us any harm. And we'll all cheer on behind. And we'll score.